0: You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Nowhere to Run. Thank you for showing up and downloading this show. If you've got any questions for me, as always, you can go to my website, NowhereToRunRadio.com. And in this episode, I'm going to be playing the second session that I'll be doing about evangelism in the upcoming Pastors Conference in Kenya. And this one is going to be kind of in-depth, talking about the various aspects and theology of the gospel. Of course, I can't cover all that there is to cover about the gospel, but there are a lot of references that I go through somewhat quickly here. I intend, when I actually do this, to do it really slowly and to give people time to write down all these references. But if you would like to actually learn uh, more about this and follow the references, you can download the notes, the PDF notes that I have with this, which is basically a script of what I say here, Um, so it can be translated too. Eventually, I'm going to be making all this stuff available on chriswhiteministries.com. But... um, At least for now, this this PDF can serve as notes for you for all the references that I mentioned. This will also probably be the last Africa Pastors Conference session that I'll post here on Nowhere to Run. I think I'll post the leadership session somewhere else, and I'll get back to the regular format of Nowhere to Run after this episode. So, without any further talking, here is Evangelism to the Gospel. In this session, we're going to talk about the theology of the gospel. In the first session, I gave an example of the gospel message. I said the following was one way to express the gospel. The good news is that the one and only God, who is holy, made us in His image to know Him. But we sinned and cut ourselves off from Him. In His great love, God became a man in Jesus lived a perfect life, and died on the cross, thus fulfilling the law himself, and taking on himself the punishment for the sins of all those who would ever turn and trust him. He rose again from the dead, showing that God accepted Christ's sacrifice and that God's wrath against us had been satisfied. He now calls on us to repent of our sins and trust in Christ alone for our forgiveness. If we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we are born again into a new life, an eternal life with God. There were many theological points made in that statement. What we're going to do is take that piece by piece and study it. For example, we will try to understand things like the doctrine of God. God is one. God is holy. He is our Creator. Why are these qualities of God important to the Gospel? I will also talk about the doctrine of sin, we are separated from God because of our sin, and that we deserve the wrath of God. Why does this matter to the Gospel? We will talk about the doctrine of God's love, and the doctrine of the Incarnation, that is, that God became a man in Christ. Why did God have to become a man? Could an angel have died for us, or did it have to be a man? We will also be studying the doctrine of the sinlessness of Christ. Why was it necessary for Jesus to be without sin? Or the substitutionary sacrifice on the cross? How exactly did Jesus pay for our sins on the cross? What happened on the cross? What scriptures were fulfilled by this? And why does it matter to us? Also the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ... What are some reasons that the resurrection is important? These are all questions that I want to talk about today. As I mentioned in the first session, I believe that the more that we understand about all the aspects of the gospel, the better we will be able to clearly explain it to all the different people we encounter. You should be able to make a child understand the gospel just as easily as you are able to make a university professor understand it. Sometimes we only have a few moments to explain the Gospel to someone. And so the more that you understand all aspects of the Gospel, the better you will be able to choose which parts of the Gospel that person needs to know at that moment. But, as I also mentioned in the first session, I don't think that it's necessary to have all this theological knowledge in order to preach the Gospel. I simply believe that we can always improve our own understanding of the Gospel and in so doing we will become better evangelists. I will be giving you many Bible verses during this talk so you can study more on each of these topics. So I encourage you to get a pencil and paper if you don't already have one. Let's start with the doctrine of God. This is important because if someone does not believe in God, then none of the other parts of the gospel will mean very much to them. The first part is that God is one, There is only one true God. If the people you talk to believe in many gods, then you may have to spend some time explaining this point. Some Bible verses that show this clearly are the following. 1 Corinthians 8 verses 4 and 6 John 17 verse 3 Deuteronomy 4 verses 35 through 36 Isaiah 42 verse 8 Isaiah 44, verse 6 and 8, and Isaiah 45, verses 5 through 6. I won't spend too much time on this point, but I would encourage your further study on this, if belief in many gods is something that you encounter in evangelism. The next one is very important to the gospel, the holiness of God. One quality of God's holiness is beauty. In the Psalms, we're told to worship the Lord in beauty of holiness in Psalm 29, verse 2, and Psalm 96, verse 9. One theologian said, If your theology is not beautiful, it is not biblical. The angels around the throne of God constantly sing, Holy, 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 in Isaiah 6, 3, and Revelation 4, 8. The main meaning of holy is, is separate. But another aspect of God's holiness is most important to the Gospel. To be holy is to be morally pure. Habakkuk tells us in the Old Testament that God's eyes are too pure to look upon evil in chapter 1 verse 13. Some other verses about the purity of God are as follows. Job 15 verse 15 Psalm 5, verse 4 through 5. Psalm 11, verse 4 through 7. Psalm 34, verse 15 through 16. 1 Peter 1, verses 15 through 16. God is holy, and because of this, He cannot tolerate evil. Even the slightest sin would prevent us from being near to God because of His Holiness. In the Old Testament, God used to dwell in what was known as the Holy of Holies. This was the part of the temple where they kept the Ark of the Covenant. The Holy Spirit of God used to dwell between the cherubim on the top of the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. No one could go into the Holy of Holies except the High Priest, and he could only go in once a year, on the Day of Atonement in order to sprinkle the blood of the Lamb on the top of the ark. This was to atone for the sins of the people of Israel. This blood was the blood of the Lamb. It was sprinkled on the top of the ark. The theological idea is that when God who was dwelling on the top of the ark looked down into the ark he did not see the tablets of the law That were inside of the ark but instead when God looked down he saw only the blood of the lamb sprinkled on the top this is why the top of the ark is translated mercy seat God had mercy and did not judge them for their sins because instead of seeing the law he saw the blood of the lamb before the high priest could go into the presence of God to sprinkle this blood he had to make sacrifices for his own sins and do many ritual cleanings because even though he was a righteous man he had to be totally clean from any personal sins before entering into the presence of God it is believed that if he sinned while in the presence of God he would die so you see that God was and is so holy that it was dangerous for even the high priest to go into his presence in the new covenant God has made a way for His Holy Spirit to be in the heart of every believer. This is now possible because God no longer sees us as sinners if we are in Christ, but instead He sees only the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, and His sinless life. We will see later when we study the Old Testament that God's plan was always to be able to dwell in the hearts of people and to change them from the inside out. Many prophecies in the Old Testament were about this. We will learn more about this later. Right now, my only point is that God's holiness is an important part of the gospel, because it is his holiness that prevents us from coming into his presence, because we are sinners. In other words, we are separated from God, because he is holy and we are sinful. The next point about the doctrine of God is that He is our Creator. If God truly is our Creator, then we owe Him our lives. We would not even exist without Him. We are designed to love Him. Isaiah 43 verse 7 says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him, yes, I have made him. We are created for God's glory, Isaiah says. This makes our rebellion against God even more terrible. A few verses you might want to write down about this are Psalm 139, verse 14, Isaiah 43, verse 7, Ephesians 2, verse 10, Ephesians 4, verse 24, and Genesis 1, verse 26-27. So God being our creator can be an important part of the gospel. There is much more about the doctrine of God that we could talk about, but for the sake of time, we will move on to the next one. The doctrine of sin. Probably the most important part of sin is that it separates us from God because of His holiness. Sin caused Adam and Eve to have to leave the Garden of Eden. And it also causes us to be separated from God. Let's turn to Isaiah 59, verse 2. It says, But your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Part of the reason that sin separates us from God is because God is a perfect judge, which means that he must righteously judge sin. We all want our earthly judges to be good judges. If the judge here in Eldoret was not a good judge, it would be dangerous for the community. For example, let's say that a person came into your friend's house and murdered his entire family. And you caught him in the act, and you tied him up. You called the police, and they took him to this judge. And the judge said, Because I am such a loving judge, I will let this person go. You would be very angry. You would say, This judge is worse than the criminals. He does not punish crimes at all. He is a terrible judge. We want our judges to judge righteously. We want them to punish criminals. If they do not do this, the community is in danger. We also want God to punish sinners. We know that if He is a perfect judge... He must give perfect justice for every sin. But this is a problem for us. Because, as Romans chapter 3 tells us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all separated from God because we are all sinners. But, God is also loving and He doesn't desire anyone to perish. That is exactly why Christ had to die. Jesus provided a way for God to remain a good judge, and provided a way for God to punish all sins ever committed, as well as a way to satisfy God's wrath against sinners. But it also allowed him a way to forgive sinners. Let's turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 25, because it explains this point very well. Verse 25 starts out, and it's talking about Jesus. It says, Whom God has set forth as a propitiation by His blood, through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The word propitiation means to satisfy God's wrath for sins. The sins of the entire world were put on Jesus at the cross. This was God's way of making sure all the sins of the world are punished. It is by the payment for all sin being made that we are no longer separated from God. If we repent and believe in the gospel. What happened on the cross then? What was in the cup that Jesus drank at Calvary? Let's turn to Luke 22 verse 42. This is Jesus the night before he was to be crucified. He was in great distress because he knew what the next day would bring. Luke who was a doctor tells us that he sweat blood in verse 44. We now know that sweating blood is possible and it's a condition that can happen when a person is extremely stressed. Verse 42 says, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So was Jesus afraid of the Roman crucifixion or the beatings that he would receive? Is this what was in the cup that he didn't want to drink, if God would allow it? no not at all, many Christians in the early church would go to an even worse torture than Jesus endured. We have records in church history of men singing as they went to be burned alive because of the privilege of being killed for the name of Christ. No, Jesus was not concerned about the beatings or the Roman cross. That was not what was in the cup that he drank for us. That was not how he paid for our sins. The following verses show us that the cup idea is used as a picture of God's wrath in scripture psalm seventy five verse eight isaiah fifty one seventeen and verse twenty two jeremiah twenty five verse fifteen Habakkuk two verse sixteen and revelation fourteen verses nine through ten Jesus was not worried about being on a Roman cross. He was worried that when he was on that cross, the full measure of God's wrath for your sin and my sin would be put on him. He would endure what I deserved, what you deserve, the just wrath of God against our sin. All sin will be punished. All sin must be punished. If God is a good judge, the only question is, will that sin be punished in the future, on Judgment Day, or 2,000 years ago, on a cross in Jerusalem? God has given his people this choice to make. Where and when do they want their sin to be punished? We are reconciled to God because of the gospel. Let's turn to Second Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 18. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There are many verses that talk about our separation from God because of sin, and our reconciliation to God through the cross. Romans 3, verse 9, 19, and 23 Romans 1, verses 28 through 32. Romans 2, verses 1 through 16. Romans 11, verse 32. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20. Galatians 3, verse twenty-two, First 1 John 1, verse 8 through 10. Hebrews 9, verse 5. 1 John 2, verse 2. First John 4, verse 10, Isaiah 50, verse 1, Proverbs 15, verse 29, and Jeremiah 5, verse 25. The next doctrine on the list that's important to the gospel is the doctrine of God's love. We know the famous verse that says, It was because of God's great love for the world that He sent His Son in John three sixteen. Romans 5, verse 8 says, But God demonstrates His own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Also in 1 John it says, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. This concept is one of the most powerful parts of the Gospel, to know that God is a God of love and that He knows each of us and cares for us so much that He took our punishment for us. John 15, verse 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You will be an effective preacher of the gospel if you study the doctrine of God's love. Here are some verses for that study. Exodus 34, verse 6-7 through 7. Psalm 105 Verse seven through seventeen, Ephesians one verse six through eight, Ephesians two verse seven, First Timothy one verse sixteen, Titus three verse four, First John four verse nine through nineteen, First John three verse sixteen, Luke four verse eighteen, Deuteronomy seven verses seven through eight, and Ephesians two verses 4 through 5. Okay, let's move on to the doctrine of the Incarnation. God became a man. Why was this necessary to the Gospel? First, here are a few verses that talk about the fact that God did become a man. Isaiah 9, verse 6. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. John 1, verse 14. And 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not Angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It says here Jesus shared in flesh and blood that he might set others free through his death. It says in verse 17 that he had to become human so he could be a merciful high priest and make propitiation. The high priest in the Old Testament would stand before God for the people. He would make the sacrifice in the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. Propitiation, again, is the sacrifice that turns away God's wrath. Man has sinned and caused the wrath of God. Man must be punished. God cannot punish angels for what man has done. He must punish man. This is an important idea, so let's turn to Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 17 to find out more about it. It says, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. There is so much more to say on this point of Jesus becoming a man like about his being our high priest, and how he prays for us, or how he was a kinsman-redeemer, like in the book of Ruth, or how he was the Passover lamb. I will give you some verses to study on the importance of Christ becoming a man. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-one 21-22 Galatians 3, verse 10 Hebrews 2, verse 10 Hebrews 4, verse 15 Romans 8, verse 3, Galatians 4, verse 4, Philippians 2, verses 7 through 8, Hebrews 9, verse 15, Isaiah 53, verse 12, Romans 14, verse 9, and Colossians 2, verse 15. Another point is about why only a perfect man could die for the sins of man. The fact that Jesus never sinned is very important to the gospel it was also important for him to be tempted, just as we are, because he needed to fulfill the law perfectly. One thing to remember is that God the Father cannot be tempted. So, God had to become a man so that he could be tempted and not sin, thereby becoming an acceptable sacrifice for man. Let's turn to Hebrews 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was the only person to never sin, and the only person, therefore, to deserve to go to heaven. If you know about the sacrifices in the Old Testament, you know that the lambs and bulls had to be perfect without physical defect. Jesus was the only one to qualify to be a sacrifice for us, because he was the only perfect one among us who had never sinned. Before we could have a sacrifice to turn away God's wrath towards man, we first needed a man to be an acceptable sacrifice by perfectly obeying God. So this helps us understand propitiation and how Christ paid for our sins. God trades the righteousness of Christ for our sin on the cross. We give Jesus our sin to be punished on the cross. And Jesus gives us His righteousness in exchange. A transfer was made on the cross. On the cross, God did to Jesus what He should do to us. And in exchange, God does to us What he should do to Jesus. God gives us what only Christ has earned the right to have. A right relationship with God and eternal life in heaven. God sprinkles the blood of the Lamb on us. So that when he looks at us, he no longer sees the law. He sees only Christ's righteousness. Let's turn back to 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's turn to Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then in verse eleven it says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. We will have righteousness, it says, given to our account. God no longer sees you as a sinner if you have repented and accepted Christ's substitution. And that is the only reason God's Spirit can be inside of you. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. What I'm going to do now is talk about the idea that the gospel is according to the scriptures, just like it says in 1 Corinthians 15. It says Jesus died according to the scriptures. I want to talk about some of the prophecies of the new covenant in the Old Testament. Understanding this really helped me understand the gospel better than ever before. So, let's start by reading verse 13 of Ephesians 1. In him, this is speaking of Jesus, by the way, you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Okay, so it says that after you heard and believed the gospel, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. It then says something very interesting, that this spirit is the, quote, guarantee. Some translations, like the King James, say earnest. But the definition of that Greek word is very interesting. It means a part of a payment made, which guarantees that the rest of the payment will be made in the future. So it says that the proof that you will eventually be glorified is that you have been given the Spirit of God. We're going to see why the Bible says this so strongly in a moment, why it is so sure that the presence of God's Spirit in your body while here on earth is a guarantee of your future eternal life in heaven. But first I want you to see other examples of this. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Starting in verse 21, it says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So you see here the same thing. The Spirit is a seal and the Spirit is a guarantee. Let's turn a few chapters ahead to chapter 5, verse 5, it says, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. There is a very good reason that the presence of the Spirit of God in your body should be a guarantee that you will eventually be glorified. Remember how in the Old Testament God's Holy Spirit dwelled in the temple and how only the high priest could enter into the presence of God. There is no possible way that the Spirit of God could dwell in us in our sinful state because man is sinful and God is holy. But this is exactly what we are told has happened in the New Covenant. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. It says, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? I want to show you prophecies of the New Covenant in the Old Testament. And you will see that the plan of God has always been to find a way to be able to dwell in His people the same way that He used to dwell in the temple and begin to change their hearts from the inside out. But before he could do this, he needed to find a way to forget your sins, so that he could dwell in you. Let's first turn to Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. This is when God made a prophecy about a new covenant, one which he says will not be like the old one. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. We know that this prophecy was not just about Israel, because Hebrews chapter 8 tells us that this also applies to Christians. We see that God has a plan to remember our sins no more, and that he will put his law in our hearts in the other prophecies about this new covenant we see more details about how exactly God plans to put his law in our hearts this is very important you should make a note of these prophecies if you don't already know them so let's turn to Ezekiel 36 starting in verse 25 it says then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Here we see that God promised that it would be his spirit that would change our minds and hearts. This must have been pretty shocking to any Jew at the time. The Holy Spirit that was in the temple would somehow be in the body of every believer in the new covenant? How could this be? How could the holiness of God be in a sinful man? The answer is in verse 25. Before he dwells in us, he sprinkles clean water on us and cleanses us from our filthiness this is done because he punished all of our sins on christ and he is willing to forget them it is also important to remind you here of the verses we read that said if this happens to you if the spirit of god dwells in you it is a guarantee of the future glory how can this be a guarantee what if i sin again after i'm saved does that mean that the holy spirit would have to leave No it would not be a guarantee if it was so easy to lose the Holy Spirit. What those verses are saying is that if the Spirit of Almighty God who created the universe is dwelling in you and you're not dead, then it is proof that God has agreed to view the blood of the Lamb and not the law in your case. God has forgiven your sins past, present, And future, that is why he can dwell in his people now. A way has been made to punish all sin so God can dwell in his people and change their hearts. So what happens if you do sin when you're saved? Turn to Ephesians 4, verse 30. It says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. God does not leave you if you sin, but he is grieved. Notice that the seal remains. The guarantee is still a guarantee. But God is grieved when you sin. If this has truly happened to you, if God truly dwells in you, when you sin, it will break your heart, and God will convict you of it and lead you to turn from that sin. If I sin, it breaks my heart, it convicts me, It makes me want to never do it again. That is one of the reasons God has given us His Spirit, so that we will be broken over sin. Let's turn to John chapter 16, starting in verse 7. It says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send Him to you. And when He comes he will convict the world of sin, and of righteousness, and of judgment. Before you were a Christian, it was possible to sin and not feel any real or godly remorse. But now that the Spirit of God dwells in you, sin will become detestable to you. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature and will begin to hate the sin he once loved. This process is called regeneration. You really are a new creature if you are in Christ. It's like before you were a pig or some other kind of animal that eats waste and trash. When you were the old creature, you never cared that you were eating waste. You thought it was normal. But what if one day you were supernaturally transformed into a human? You might continue to try to eat waste for a while, but pretty soon you'll say, I can't eat this trash anymore!" When God saves people it's like this. It's a supernatural thing that changes you into a new creature with different desires. Philippians 1 verse 6 says that the one who began a good work in you will see it to completion. God will spend the rest of your life conforming you to the image of Christ, which is made possible by God's Spirit in you. This is the doctrine of regeneration, that God's Spirit is what changes us, and the Spirit accomplishes this by the conviction of sins, among other things. I will move on to the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ. Jesus was raised from the dead. We are told by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 that this is a very important part of the Gospel message. Let's turn there to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16 it says for if the dead do not rise then Christ is not risen and if Christ is not risen your faith is futile you are still in your sins so why is the resurrection of Christ so important to the gospel although the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is what saves us the resurrection of Christ proves that this sacrifice was acceptable it shows all men everywhere that Jesus was who he said that he was, and that he is the only way to the Father. You can see in verse five through eight that Paul makes the point that this was witnessed by many people. He says, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the 12, after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. The resurrection of Christ is used as proof of the claims of Christ by Paul when preaching to the Gentiles in Acts 17. Let's turn there, Acts 17 starting in verse 30. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Paul mentions the resurrection to them as evidence of the gospel being true. But there is another reason that the resurrection is important. To put it in one word, hope. Back in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about how Jesus raising from the dead is the first fruits of the resurrection of all believers. You know from reading the New Testament that the early church was ready to die for the cause of the gospel. And this was actually because of their understanding of the resurrection. They knew that death had no more victory over them. Death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? They knew that Christ's raising from the dead was proof that they also would be resurrected to eternal life. This is the great hope of all believers. So the resurrection is the proof of the claims of Christ, the proof that God accepted the payment of Christ for your sins, and the proof that one day all believers will be raised from the dead as well. And the other side of that is that it also proves that his claims of judging the world in the future are true. And that is what Paul told the Gentiles the resurrection meant to them. Here are some verses about the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the gospel message Acts 2, verse 23 and 24. Acts 3, verse 14 and 15. Acts 4, verse 33. Acts 10, verse 39 through 41. Acts 13, verse 30 and 31. Acts 17, verses 2 and 3. Romans 1, verses 1 through 4. Romans 4, verses 25. Romans 6, verse 9, Romans 10, verse 9, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 and 4, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, Ephesians 1, verse 20, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14, 2 Timothy 2, verse 8, and 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Finally, the idea of trusting Christ alone for our salvation. This is very important to the gospel. The book of Galatians is about the following question. Do we need to do good works in order to be saved? The answer is no. We must repent and believe the gospel in order to be saved. And if we are truly saved, the evidence of that salvation will be that good works will show in our lives. Everyone who is a Christian will begin to show some fruit of that salvation the fruits of the spirit of Galatians five twenty two 22 and 23. For example, when Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He did not mean that the only way you can love him is by keeping the commandments. He is saying that if you love him, if you are truly saved, you will show evidence of that love through obedience. Good works are the evidence of salvation, not the requirements of salvation. The book of Galatians tells us that it is dangerous to believe that something you are doing is helping your salvation. If you believe that, then you do not understand what happened on the cross 2,000 years ago. Paul says that it is dangerous to believe this because it is a different gospel. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 2. It says, Indeed I, Paul, say to you, that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised, that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Our hope of righteousness is in faith in Christ. That is our only hope of eternal life. Our only hope to be considered worthy before God is to be seen with the perfect righteousness of Christ. This is something we must study diligently, so here are some verses for you to look up. Romans three twenty four, Romans four sixteen, Romans five, sixteen through nineteen, 1 Corinthians six verse eleven, Ephesians two verse seven through ten. Titus 3 verse 5 through 7, Romans 4 verse 5, Romans 9 verse 11, Romans 9 verse 16, Romans 9 verse 30, Romans 11 verse 6, Galatians 2 verse 16, Galatians 3 verse 16 through 21, Ephesians 2 verse 4, Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, 2 Timothy 1 verse 9. I will conclude by saying that if you are to become theologians in only one area, let it be in the gospel. Not only is it the most interesting area of doctrine, it is the most useful in ministry. You cannot waste time by studying the gospel. But also don't feel like you need to know all of what was said here in order to preach the gospel. You do not. The gospel is simple, but it is also complicated. A child can understand it, but a theologian can study it for a lifetime and never find all of its treasure. Thanks for listening to Nowhere to Run. You can download all of the archives to this show and others I have done for free at NowhereToRunRadio.com. Your prayers and donations are needed and appreciated. You can partner with me to reach many more people with discipleship, apologetics, and the gospel. Go to Nowhere to Run Radio to help support this ministry. Thanks for your time. we yeah.